And so tonight, it is my privilege to introduce a friend of mine, a brother in Christ. His name is George Javier. Welcome, and we're looking forward to you sharing.
out at, out at, farther out at sea. I learned in Vietnam that the world is a violent, dangerous place, confusing place that I couldn't do anything about. I was left with the question, where do I fit into this thing called life? When my tour of duty was over, I came back to the U.S. and I had a terrible time trusting back to civilian life. I couldn't work. I didn't want to work. I couldn't settle down. The only two things I could do was play golf and watch television. And I shared that with somebody one time and they said, you, you must have had post-traumatic stress. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't, have, I didn't have PTSD. I had a, a spirit that God put in me, a spirit of restlessness. Because I had a destiny in another country. One day I decided to leave the U.S. So I flew to Europe, spent a few weeks in Europe, then I flew to Singapore in the Far East. Then I picked up a ship. Seven days later, I landed in beautiful Australia. I always wanted to go to Australia. Even as a high school kid, I wanted to go to Australia. If you'd ask me in high school, what one country do you want to go see? I would say Australia. Australia was on my bucket list even before I had a bucket. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time, but I had an appointment with God in Australia. For those of you that are geographically challenged, here's a map of where Australia is. <laughs> Australia is almost as big as the United States, and when I was there, there were only 14 million people there in, in the, whole, the whole country. I landed in Perth, Australia, in Western Australia. Perth is on the, on the west coast, but it's cut off from the rest of Australia by uh, a massive desert. This is Perth by night. I got an instant liking to Australians in Australia. Australians are more relaxed than Americans. They love being outdoors. They have a beautiful climate. They love their beaches. Their, Sports, their Aussie rules are tall, their pubs, their barbecues. So I fit right in. But I needed a job. I needed a job. And I heard there was big money to be made in the outback. Now why would there be money, big money to be made in the outback? The government surveyors found large deposits of very high-grade iron ore. But there was no, no, no town for the, for the miners to live in. So they had to build a whole town. So I took off the construction sites out in the desert. This is on the way to nowhere. You'll notice there's no mileage on the sign. I'll just point you in the right direction and say good luck. We were to carve out a town where there was no town where no town existed before. The desert was very interesting to me. I was attracted to the desert and the desert lifestyle right from the very beginning. God planted seed in me that would bear, fr bear fruit later in Africa. Looking back now, I learned that God plants seeds in our lives that often take many years to come to fruition. Be patient if God has planted a seed or a vision in you for something he wants you to do. I was also getting interested in photography. There was much to see in photograph. This is, a, this is an abandoned Catholic church that I found in the desert. This is wave rock. It's a giant rock. It looks like a sea wave. Abandoned cars everywhere. I love these old red cars. Here's an abandoned gold mine that miners just walked away from. And then the ever-present Australian desert sunset. For you Photoshop people, this is unretouched, exactly as I photographed it. More interesting to me than the desert, the people of the desert, that is the desert aborigines. These are a couple of aborigines that I photographed. I enjoyed sitting around talking to them about their life stories. They spoke enough English to where I could have a good conversation with them and find out what it was like when they were younger, living in the desert. 
There's nowhere I can get a haircut, by the way. <laughs> After about a year, I left the construction and I traveled around Australia. I think I've seen more of Australia than probably 95% of all Australians. This is uh, Ayers Rock in the middle of the country, thousands of miles of coastland. I ended up in Sydney, Australia, which is on the east coast. This is a picture I took of the uh, Sydney Opera House, a beautiful building inside and out, designed to look like the sails of a ship. Next is the Cotanger Bridge. This is where we 20-somethings would go and meet new people and visit pubs, usually on a Sunday instead of being in church. Well, my ADD kicked in, so I left for New Zealand. New Zealand is two islands, a North Island and a South Island. New Zealand is noted for its sheep raising. New Zealand has a population of about 4.5 million people and, and 40 million sheep. It's one of the greenest countries I've ever been in. There's beautiful fjords and glaciers. What interested me most about New Zealand was a, was a merchant marine heavy lift cargo ship left over from World War II. I wanted to go where this ship was going. So I went down and I talked to the captain and I explained to him I'd been in the Navy. He hired me on as a deck seaman. I wanted to go where this ship was going because once a year, this ship went to, was to the research facilities at Scott Base, Antarctica. This is a Coast Guard icebreaker, a, four, a big four, four diesel engine icebreaker that would rise up above the ice, break the ice, push the ice under the water, and then we would follow behind it. This is about five days out of, south of New Zealand. It was 90 degrees when we left New Zealand, and five days later it was about zero degrees. Here I was standing on some of the equipment that we carried at the research facilities with the content in the background. This is coming in the, into uh, uh, Antarctica. It was like traveling through a zoo because there were seals, birds, penguins everywhere, and beautiful icebergs bigger than our ship. We tied up to a 25-foot thick piece of ice. I worked a normal eight to five day job, and then at five o'clock I was free to roam in Antarctica. <laughs> Scott Base Antarctica was named for Robert Falcon Scott, the great explorer who made it to the South Pole. What a great name for an explorer, by the way, Robert Falcon Scott. He wanted to be the first person to reach the South Pole, but he was beaten from there by Ernest Shackleton. Scott died on the return journey because they hit an unusual summer storm and died from starvation and exposure on the 29th of March, 1912. This was his home base. And what's weird or spooky about it is, you know, Antarctica is just this big decrease. And nothing deteriorated. Even the seals that they had killed for food when they, when they were supposed to return to this very spot were still there that they had killed in 1912. There was much to explore, large ice caves and interesting landscapes. There were no sunrises and no sunsets in Antarctica because the sun was up 24 hours a day. The sun went around the horizon in a big circle. After eight days at the base, we picked up our icebreaker again and headed back to New Zealand. And then it was back to Sydney, Australia. From Sydney, I went back to my desert in Western Australia. I was traveling on a very lonely road, and everything was going fine until I had some bad car trouble. You know, when you're a photographer, you photograph everything. 
I made it to a small town called Fitzroy Crossing in Western Australia. This is 95% of the town. <laughs> I asked, and this is where my life story begins to change. I asked at the pub where there was where was the nearest gas station so I could get my car fixed. And I was told there's nothing for a hundred miles. He said, but there's a couple of tools that live about a mile from here who help people in trouble. They're Christian missionaries who were working with the Aborigines. And they're about a mile from here. I made it to their station where I met Pete and Joy Taylor. This is 40 years after I met them. The Taylors were an outstanding Australian evangelical missionary couple who had a significant ministry with the desert Aborigines. Their whole lives were committed to these people. Their lives were making a difference for God. They were classic missionaries, very friendly, very helpful. They asked me lots of questions. I spent three days with, with them, working on my car. I finally got my car going, and as I was thanking Pete Taylor for his help, for, the, for their hospitality, and for, uh, for use of his tools, he asked me, have, have you ever read the Bible? I was 25 years old and never read one page of the Bible. It's dangerous to be biblically illiterate. I was biblically illiterate. A friend of mine was a wedding photographer, and he told me the story about a non-Christian wedding that he got a contract to photograph. During the ceremony where they joined the, husband, the, the bride and groom, they gave one of the non-Christian groomsmen an NIV study Bible to read the 3 Corinthians 13. Well, he was illiterate in the Bible. He didn't know the difference between a regular Bible and a study Bible. And when, he, when the text finished and the study notes started, he started reading the study notes. <laughs> awesome. It's dangerous to be biblically illiterate at any stage in life. Meeting the Taylors was a divine appointment for me. It was not chance or good luck that I met the Taylors. What are the mathematical chances of being in the vast Australian desert, breaking down in your car one mile from two of the finest evangelical Christians you'd ever want to meet? God had a divine appointment for me. As I began to read the New Testament that Pete Taylor gave me, I found it extremely interesting. Two things grabbed me immediately. The Bible itself and the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. God was drawing me to himself. While reading the Bible every day, I decided to take a three-month photographic trip to Papua New Guinea to do some photography. Papua New Guinea is an interesting country. It has only 8 million people, but 850 different languages. There's no country in the world that has more languages, more different languages than Papua New Guinea, and only 8 million people in the country. This is how I got around in New Guinea with MAF, flying up into the mountains there. When I got up into the mountains, here was another way that I got around, by the way. <laughs> this was in the swamps and the rivers section. The people were very fascinating to me. They were warring tribes, boundary disputes, and men dressed in their battle dress. I kept bumping into these people called missionaries. They talked to me about the Lord. One missionary gave me Hal Lindsey's book, Late Great Planet Earth. Late Great Planet Earth was revolutionary to me because Hal Lindsey put together how, why we can trust the Bible and how the Bible is put together. What about Israel and Bible prophecy? And that really grabbed me. I spent three months in New Guinea and then it was back to Sydney, Australia. This is five months 
between the time E. Taylor gave me the Bible and I was back in Sydney. A friend of mine, who was a new Christian, invited me to go to church to see an amateur film on New Guinea where I'd just been filming. I didn't want to go to the church because of the bad memories I had at church as a teenager. But I wanted to see that film because I thought I might learn something about filmmaking. So he, so we went to this very church, Belfar Street Baptist Church, in downtown Sydney, Australia. It was Sunday night when I got there. And I met Reverend Russell Ecom, E-C-O-B is his name. He asked me my name and I told him, and then he broke all the rules of evangelism. He didn't ask me why I had a funny American accent, what I was doing in Australia. He didn't invite me out to lunch. He didn't try to make friends. He didn't try to ask me anything about, about me. He just came, and I probably didn't look like a fundamentalist Baptist Christian <laughs> in my jeans and my Japanese combat boots that I used to wear, my t-shirts, my hair. I didn't look like a fundamentalist Baptist Christian. And so he asked, after asking me my name, he just came right out and said, are you a Christian? And I said, I don't know if I'm a Christian. So he grabbed me by the arm, took me into the back of the church, and showed me two verses from the Bible. Then he said, do you want to pray and become a Christian? Much to his surprise and mine, I said yes. I found the reason why God wanted me to go to Australia. This is a picture of me becoming a Christian. <laughs> Three weeks later, I was baptized, and my Christianity took off. I just couldn't get enough of church, the Bible, or Christians. During that five-month period, between the time he tailored gave me the Bible and Reverend Peacock led me to the Lord, if somebody would have asked me, did I believe in Jesus, I probably would have said, yeah. Yeah, I read about him every day, I believe in him. Sure, why not? But I, I wasn't born again, and I wasn't a real Christian. I didn't know Jesus, and I was not a Christian. I think the verse, I think one of the verses that Reverend Peacock showed me was John chapter 1, verse 12. I think it's John 1, 12. Me. <laughs> John writes, yet to all those who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. To all those who did receive him. I believed, but I hadn't received Jesus. And in our evangelical tradition, we pray and we ask Jesus to come into our lives and receive him that way. I believed in Jesus, but I hadn't received him. Reverend Ebob led me to the throne of grace. There's about a billion Muslims in the world that would tell you they believe in Jesus. That's because if you ask a Muslim, do you believe in Jesus? They say, sure, I read about it in the Quran. But they're not born again, they're not Christians. John 1.12 is a two-punch verse. Believe and receive. Maybe some of you are in that same boat that I was in. You believe what you have to receive. You can settle that tonight. After the death of your you can come up here and settle it. I know it's not wise to make a formula out of your salvation experience. But based on my own experience, the pattern of the Christian life seems to be believe and receive. Then, in obedience to being saved, you're baptized as a demonstration of your faith in God and Christ. Then you're discipled, and then you enter into Christian service. All people fit somewhere on that scale. <coughs> Believe, receive, then be baptized, be discipled, and enter into Christian service. I think, I think there's two lessons here. Lesson number one is God has appointments for you and me. Yours may not be in Australia, but yours may be in Seabring, Florida. They learn from God's name. Secondly, the Taylors and Reverend Ecob are part of my testimony. I've shared my testimony hundreds of times, and they are always part of my testimony. You and I need to be a Pete and Joy Taylor or a Russell Peacock or somebody. We need to be part of somebody else's testimony. In the will of God, I started the Christian Life Practice. 
you know, the average missionary, they grow up in a Christian home and they go to the youth group and they go to the college group and they go to Bible college and then they go overseas to be missionaries. I started backwards. I started in the mission field. So I was working with Australian missionaries for two months and then I went back to Papua New Guinea. The only thing I could do was photography and filmmaking for the missionaries. God will use whatever you have in your hands if you give it to him. That was the only thing I knew how to do. Make yourself available to the Lord for his service. And yes, I still need an haircut. <laughs> it was tough to leave the beginning because I felt I had some purpose to my life. After Papua New Guinea, I went to the Philippines for a couple of months, again working with missionaries doing photography, and on to Hong Kong. While I was in Hong Kong, I met a Christian missionary, Alliance missionary, who said to me, you need to go to Israel. I thought, okay. <laughs> so I flew to Tel Aviv, got a bus to Jerusalem, and I stayed with a Christian missionary alliance couple who rented out rooms in their large house in downtown Jerusalem. Warren Graham was the uh, husband there. And he asked me how long did I think I would be with them in Israel. I said, oh, I'll be here about three weeks. Twenty months later, I left Israel because the Lord opened a phenomenal experience for me to go to school in Jerusalem and focused on Bible history, geography, and archaeology. It was a great gift of God to be a brand new Christian. I wasn't a Christian for one year and I'm living in Jerusalem, studying under top evangelical and Jewish scholars. It was a great experience for me. Thank God for it. Jesus led me all the way. You could study places and events in the classroom and then go visit those places that you just studied, just read about. This is the, this is the uh, synagogue in Capernaum. When the year-long program was over, my friend John Andrews, a fellow student, and I, we decided to go visit some of the cities of the Apostle Paul. So we got on this ship, the Apollonia. There we are there. And off to Greece. This is the Parthenon, built 400 years before the Apostle Paul was there. So we actually got to sit there and read Acts chapter 17. Um, about where Paul shared the gospel with the philosophers. That was then we, then we went to Turkey, visited every site in the New Testament in Turkey. We need to pray for Turkey. Turkey's 80 million people. In our three weeks of hard travel every day, every Christian site mentioned in the New Testament in Turkey, we met a grand total of two Turkish Christians. <coughs> What's sad is that's where the church, the church was not born in Turkey, but the church developed in Turkey. Then we took off for Damascus. Damascus is the oldest, most continuously inhabited city in the world. Then we went to Jordan. In Jordan, we stayed overnight in Petra. We slept on the ground in one of these buildings. And eventually, I made it to Egypt. This was high adventure. Pure Bible, seeing the Lord provide for us, and visiting these archaeological sites. This is how I think I saw myself at that time. <laughs> Not really. This completed five years of travel. I left the U.S. as a non-Christian and returned as a born-again Christian with three years of overlapping missions experience in four different countries and, and serious Bible study in Israel. This was all because Jesus led me all the way. I then did a degree in the U.S. in the Bible and one in education. I felt it was time to serve the Lord full time, but I didn't know where or how. I don't know if you've ever asked the Lord to show you something and he's quiet. <laughs> I prayed, Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to stay here in America and work in the church? No answer. How about if I go back to Hong Kong? 
because I studied English, teaching English as a second language. Go to China to teach English and do evangelism in China. Silence. How about some other places? I'm going back to Papua New Guinea. Complete silence. I wasn't quite sure what to do, so I went to my teacher in graduate school. He'd been, a, he'd been an SIM missionary in Nigeria for 13 years. I asked him what he thought I ought to do. He said, I think you ought to go to Nigeria, West Africa. I said, okay. I applied to SIM and was accepted. I was really impressed with SIM. They were a very professional mission, very um, solid ministry-minded, very prayer-minded mission, mission, mission group. So I thought, well, let me, that seems to be the door that was open. So I went to Nigeria, West Africa in 1985. I did not feel called to go to Nigeria. I felt led, but not called. I landed in the big Muslim city of Kano, K-A-N-O, in northern Nigeria. Kano has about two, had about two million people in those days, 98 or 90%, 99% Muslim. Africa was a bit different than what I thought it would be. <laughs> After being in Nigeria for only a few weeks, I had a tremendous sense come across, come over me. This was God's calling on my life. There's a picture of me being called. <laughs> I saw no visions and had no tongues of fire, but I knew that's where God wanted me to be. I would need to fall back on that calling many times in the future. I learned that there's a difference between a leading of the Lord and a calling of the Lord. A leading of the Lord is when you feel the Lord leading you in a particular direction. The door is open. You take a step of faith. You go through that door and God confirms it on the other side. The book of Hebrews says, in 11.6, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so we need to take steps of faith. To me, a calling is a more powerful experience, like the Apostle Paul on the, on the Damascus Road. My calling came after my step of faith. During Rachel Patterson's wedding, I had two Word, word of Life guys stay with me. They were friends of the bride and the groom. And they were, these were godly guys. I was really impressed with them. Both headed for full-time ministry, and I asked them one day, did they ever consider being missionaries? Here's what they said. They said, if God calls us, we'll go. Well, I thought two things. I thought, number one, praise the Lord, that they said they would go. Not all Christians are going to say they'll go. But number two, I thought, what would that calling have to look like? How powerful would that calling have to be? Follow the leading until you're called. After language school in Nigeria, I was sent to an advanced level Bible school in the Muslim north of Nigeria. I was teaching veteran pastors in their language, which I was learning in front of <laughs> I was the only SIM missionary in the only North American for 100 miles. There was a German couple with the YMCA that lived about 40 miles away from me. I would go visit them on occasion when I needed to talk to a Westerner. In many ways, I was a student. It was a crash, because, I, because it was just me and the Africans, it was a real crash course in their culture and their language. <coughs> I felt the Lord telling me that just be patient because the knowledge that I'm gaining of what it means to live in a village will pay off for the rest of my teaching career. At the seminary where I eventually ended up after five years, um, all of the seminary students come from the village setting. And I could clearly identify with them what it was like being surrounded by Muslims, having a Muslim chief in the village, animals coming through the village like baboons and hyenas and um, village elders and things like that. This was our little factory at the school. There were only 30 students at the time. 
this was our little factory. I want to go through these the faculty just to show you what happens happened to them and what it's like living in, in today's Africa. On the right is my friend Luca Gabi. He's the one with the striped shirt and the tie. He and I were, he's my, he was my best Nigerian friend. I had many Nigerian friends, but he was number one. There was, there's only one Luca Gabi in my life. He was eventually transferred to pastoral church in a large Muslim city in northern Nigeria. He was murdered. He was found murdered one day. No one was ever arrested for, his, for the crime. Next to him is Ephraim Bella in the white gown. He was my neighbor for two and a half years. We lived 50 feet apart. He was the principal of the school. He was shot and killed in the Muslim riots in 1991. Next to him is Mrs. Rhoda Sally. She was our women's institute teacher, teaching wives and pastors who were at the school. She died of hypertension and high blood pressure. And there's me. I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> and missing, missing from the photograph is Yakubu Chiwar, a theology teacher. He was killed in the head-on car crash. I was surrounded by so much debt that I had to fall back on my calling and stay confident in God. After my first few years of teaching, I went on furlough, my first home assignment. I started a degree at Trinity International University. Then I went back to Nigeria. I was sent to a rapidly growing seminary in the center of Nigeria. There were 125 students when I went there and 500 when I left 25 years later. I found a more entrepreneurial way to invest myself. You know, the Christian life is an investment. To me, there are horizontal investments and there are vertical investments. Our horizontal investments are things like our house, our retirement planning, our stocks, our IRAs. All of these things are important. All of these things are necessary. We leave 100% all of them behind when we go to be with Jesus one day. Our vertical investments are more related to people, the church, the kingdom of God, evangelism, discipleship. These investments are our reward waiting for us when we get to heaven. I found better ways of doing vertical investing at the seminary, such as working with the drama group. This was a cutting-edge drama team that did evangelism on Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. Secondly, the music team. I did not play with, the, with these because it was better to send them out. It was better for them to learn leadership and not rely on me, and it was also better for Africans to reach out. But they were a very terrific music group. Third, we had the Campus Crusade Jesus film teams. These teams would leave the seminary Friday afternoon. They would go to, they would drive no more than three hours to a village. They would stay there and do ministry Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. They would come back late Sunday night to the seminary. Monday morning at 8 o'clock, they're back in class. With incredible stories of power encounter, demon possession, cultural problems, Muslim evangelism problems. It was the real learning center of the seminary. The Lord also gave me a burden for planting new churches with the seminary graduates. Pastor Todd mentioned that I still, I'm still working with 20, 20 graduates, or I mean 20, 20 church planners, even as we speak today. Investing in God's work is not easy, but it's rewarding. I learned to be a great commissioned Christian, focusing on the priorities of evangelism, discipleship, and church planning. So what does all this mean to us? First, believe, receive, be baptized, be discipled, and serve the Lord. You fit somewhere on that scale. Believe, receive, be baptized, be discipled, serve the Lord. Where do you fit on that scale? Secondly, there's a difference between a leading of the Lord and a calling of the Lord. I'd like to recommend that you follow the, call, the leading of the Lord and believe by faith that as you take steps of faith, He will, he will call you into, into the ministry that He has for you. It probably won't be to Africa, but it may be to teach Sunday school. Trust God as he leads you in his perfect will for you. 
Third, invest yourself wisely. Here's a question for you. How is your vertical investment portfolio doing? What is in your vertical investment portfolio? Only your vertical investments will be waiting for you in heaven. A friend of mine was an uh, investment counselor. And he told me that people, Christians, people, including Christians, prepare for everything except the return of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Invest yourself wisely. If God should let me there review the winding paths of earth I knew, it would be proven clear and true Jesus led me all the way. The world is a violent, dangerous, confusing place that I can't do anything about. But Jesus can. Jesus said, go into all the world and make a difference. One person can make a difference. May that person be you and me. Jesus said in Luke 10 too, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Who here could be one of those few? Living a life that matters is a decision, not an accident. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these few thoughts tonight. Thank you for this great church. We pray that your Holy Spirit might do his work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, George.